This is Bevan, and welcome to the Human Story Podcast. This is a podcast about people, because people are fascinating. We're going to look at the highs and the lows and everything in between. Thank you so much for connecting. It really means a lot. It would also be very cool of you to share this with your friends and family, and also give this podcast a great review. May the human story go far and wide. Today I talk with Lieutenant General Robert Van Antwerp, a retired three-star general and known to most simply as General Van. Van is widely respected across industry and the military as a leader of leaders, embodying the traits of successful leadership through his long and varied career working with civilians and the military. Van retired in 2011 after 39 years of service. Most recently, served as Chief of Engineers and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He was the senior military officer overseeing a 40-plus billion program, including most of the United States' civil works infrastructure and military construction on 250 Army and Air Force installations worldwide. He now sits on numerous corporate and nonprofit boards. Van is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point and holds an MBA from Long Island University and an MS in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Michigan. He is a registered professional engineer. He and his wife, Paula, have three sons and 14 grandchildren. It was such a pleasure to have this conversation with General Van. We talk family and leadership. I need to throw in this disclaimer before we start. This was recorded a time ago, and so some scenarios and details in life may have changed since. Also, with the ongoing restrictions of movement and the reliance on the internet, the sound quality isn't as good as I'd want it to be, but it is still a brilliant conversation. So, enjoy. General Van, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's just my pleasure to be with you today. Well, I just want to extend my thanks and appreciation right from the outset you know, to give of your time. We don't know each other personally, but we're thankful, obviously, for mutual friendships that we have with the Flippins. And so I really appreciate you setting aside time in your schedule and, and actually having this conversation with me. Well, it's great. This is, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I love to talk about family, talk about uh, leadership. Uh, maybe first I'll just talk a little bit about my family. Um, I married my childhood yeah. sweetheart, uh, back we met when we were 15, so we've been married 46 years now and uh, dated seven because I went to West Point. You can't be married and go to West Point or we probably would have gotten married out of high school. But uh, out of that, we have five children. Four of them are natural and one's adopted. We did foster care along the way and had eight different children, one of them, of which is our adopted son. And out of those, they've produced 19 grandchildren, and we have one on the way. So we are uh, blessed beyond measure in that regard. So with regards to your children right now, and you've mentioned your grandchildren, are they in close vicinity to you? Three of our families are military families. Of course, we're a military family, so we're, we're you know, 
proud of the fact if, if you can have the right kind of pride. I, I get what God says about pride being sin, and he's dealt with us on that in yep. our lifetimes. But we're very <laughs> proud that our kids decided they would want to go into the military. So we've got three um, military families and then two that are on the economy, so to speak. They're civilians out there. Um, now, this, my wife, uh, her car, she has a Honda Odyssey, and on a given year, we probably put 40,000 miles on that. Prior to me having this conversation, uh, I did do a little bit of research just to you know, figure out um, as to the role and career that you've had. And, and I watched an interview where you were on a news channel, and they were asking you about the recruitment into the United States Army, into the military. And you, I believe, used a statistic that said close on 50%, and please correct me if I'm wrong with this, most 50% of the intake into the military come from military families. And you just made the comment with regards to being a military family and you have your kids in the military. What, why do you think that is, General Van, that there is such a, a really strong legacy within families that, that it goes through generations? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, first of all, we would love it if a larger percentage, like back, you go back to World War II, almost every family in America was touched, either an uncle, an aunt, a son, a brother, sister, father, mother was in the military during World War II. But now it's a much, much smaller percentage, probably down in maybe the, the five to 10%, and don't quote me on that number. But now we look at the military and where do they come from? And by the way, uh, we have about 1.3 million people just in the Army, which is where I'm most familiar. Okay. But then you can add the other services. The Army uh, is that. Then you got the Air Force, the Navy, the Marines, the Coast Guard. So, um, but generally, the majority, over 50%, I would say it's true in all the services, comes from people with a military background. The, the good thing of that is, I think it's one of the things we tried to instill in our children, is the notion of service. And, you know, when you talk about, we, when we lump all the, the, the different, and I'll use the term, services together, we always use that word, that we're in the service. I've always felt for 39 years I was in the service. And so it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. Um, but the flip side of that is we wish it was a higher percentage of families that contributed because you have, while most of our, you know, enlistees come out of military families, it's a very small percentage of the families at large that have military members. By the way, when uh, one of the years I was in there, maybe around the time of that video that you watched, we were recruiting 170,000 young people, which you think, wow. wow, I mean, you take any business, any, I mean, in, in our church, if we're like right now, we're uh, kind of looking for three positions to fill. And I say three positions compared to 170,000 <laughs> positions, we can do this thing, you know, so, <laughs> but yeah, they're pretty big numbers, but it's a big scale and big organization. I'm definitely wanting to come back to focusing in on the military and, and the role that you've played in that context and, and particularly to talk about leadership in that context. But I, I want to pick up on you speaking about your marriage and being married for close on 50 yeah. years now, an incredible milestone. 
So if I could get your insight, I would love to ask you just from your perspective, there are a lot of married couples right now. There are a lot of couples who find themselves in a very unique situation was prior to the pandemic. For example, I've got a friend, I've made mention of this in other recordings as well, a friend of mine in the UK, she married uh, an airline pilot. And so typically he would be away 50% of the time. And now during this pandemic, uh, airlines have obviously you know, grounded a lot of their flights. He is at home. <laughs> and so they find themselves in a unique situation of now being in each other's space 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And with that, you know, there's some incredibly good things, but no doubt there's going to be some tensions. How have you navigated those scenarios over the years, having the incredible longevity that you do? First thing is, uh, I did marry my childhood sweetheart. Her name is Paula. She is more than awesome and has been from the get-go. And there's a couple things that we do every morning this morning. We're reading through the Bible. We're, we just finished Second Chronicles, going into Ezra, starting tomorrow. And we, we, do, we get our coffee. We do our devotionals. We have prayer time together. And that's how we start our day. And uh, one thing I'll talk about when we talk about leadership, we always ask the question, what do you get to do today? So she knows right now I'm in my office and back in my bedroom and she's out on the kitchen table with my mother-in-law, by the way, that has come to live with us during this. She's 92. So we're, we're giving back as she wow. gave to us all these years. And um, it's, a, it's a privilege. It's a little bit of a new normal for us because we're not used to having someone of, of that age and yeah. getting up in the morning. You know all the things that go with that. But So I, I, I start with how we start our days right now, because I, I do believe that couples that pray together and then they do share what they're doing, what do they get to do today? And then they give freedom. They give room for the other. I've always said, I, I've, I've said, Paula, you fly. You are not restricted to me. You're not in my shadow. We're, I, I love the picture when God made woman he took him out of the rib of man, not out of the foot, so she'd be underfoot, not out of the head, so she would lord over him, but side by side. And I have that picture of, in my mind of, you know, a couple with their arms around each other. And if either one sags a little bit, the other one's there to hold them up. And they, that's the teamwork. And I think that's what Paul and I have established over time. Um, I did, when I was chief of engineers, my last assignment in the Army was um, I was on the road pretty much every week. I tried to confine it to Tuesday through Thursday, so Monday and Friday I was back in. So every weekend I'd have a four-day kind of normal with my family, um, but that's how we were able to manage. And, of course, Paula did amazing things. The, one of the things at that time, all of our children are out. They're all adult children. Our youngest is 33. Our oldest is 43. So uh, that's the spread of our kiddos. Uh, but we, uh, we've just been able to do that. And part of my notion as a husband is to let my wife fly, let her use her gifts. And one of the things she does right now is uh, love the scripture about the older women teaching the younger woman, women. And so she has a number of women that she meets every week. They've been very faithful and she is pouring herself into younger women that have children at home and all of that. 
Um, one last thing is, you know, one of the new normals right now for our families is we had one of our families with six children already was homeschooling. The other one with with five, almost six homeschools. So two of our family homeschool and then one of our families that has seven, they're coming out of the public schools. And my son, um, by the way, I'll brag on him just a little bit. He's going to be a general. I call him. He'll be a baby general. But he's, uh, his next assignment is a general officer position. So uh, that's exciting for us, a family. But he's working out of his home, too. And he's got all of his kids, and they aren't in school. So they are doing, uh, they're doing a <laughs> lot of uh, outside activities, keeping their distance, you know, walking, running, um, fishing. They've got, a, they've got a speedboat that they go out in. They caught a couple of sharks this past weekend down in Tampa Bay. And... So they're all adjusting. None of our families are perfect, and I don't want to paint them that way. But they're all working and have strategies about how to use this time for the glory of God and to, to do that. So that's what they're doing. So it's a, it's a different thing. I think um, this is a time where you can really get on people's nerves or you can help other people fly. That would be, well, and so our, our family, we're, we give space, and uh, you know, I tell my wife. My wife, by the way, ran a full Ironman at the age of sixty-six, the Florida Ironman, and then went on to run the national championships or the world championships, half Ironman the next year. And uh, so I know her. One of her go-to places is when it, when she might get a little bit afraid. Is hey, sweetie, put on your running shoes and go out there. And uh, she'll go out and uh, that, that's her refresher. So I think we've got to know what, what fills our tank and what takes away from our tank. I'm picking up that you live a very mm. intentional life. Would you say that is something that has come from your time in the military? Or were you just always somebody that was quite intentional or even disciplined in your approach, relationships and <laughs> in, in life? I was disciplined as a as a young person, I think, and my parents were, were disciplined. So, um, I caught it. And, uh, part of it was, so when I went to West Point, which is a very disciplined college environment, um, instead of some people that was so different for them to me, it was natural. And so I really thrived during that, uh, four year time in college. And that discipline, that was the beginning of my military discipline. So I've always been, I'm a, a couple things would, you don't know me well, but one of the things is that discipline. Another thing is I'm kind of a minimalist. I'm a, I live simply, but, and then the third part is I'm a planner. I'm, I'm out there and I, I hold my plans loosely. I used to hold them a lot tighter, but I learned from God, hold it loosely until you've hear, heard from me that that's exactly what I want you to do. Um, but to go ahead and plan, I mean, keep doing that. I'll just give you one little Peace. Um, so the second part of your question, did that come from the military? Uh, I would say to that also, yes. What that did was reinforce it, strengthen it, and give me some tools. And uh, I'll just share a tool that we got from the Army. Back probably mm, 70s or 80s, I came in in 1972, went to West Point in 68. So really been in military since 1968, if you want to think that way. But um, somewhere in probably the, the 70s or early 80s, the Army came out 
with this notion of having mission essential task list. And they call it the metal, metal, mission essential task list. And so I brought that concept yeah. home, which a lot of people say, that's really weird. You're going to now bring that home. But here's the notion. We wanted a mission essential task list. And I say we, Paul and I, we wanted to sit down and, and it really, uh, the other way to look at it is if you were to give gifts to your children by the time they leave your home at 18, and we do that tongue in cheek, but we also do that. That's what we told our kids when you know, when you leave our home at 18, either to go to college, to get your job and have your own apartment or whatever you're going to do, we wanted to give certain gifts to them. And so we sat down, Paul and I, and we talked about those things. And we started with a list of about 10 and we started to boil it down and said, no fooling, because I'm, I'm a firm, and this goes back to kind of the minimalist. I believe if you're going to be a good leader, if you're going to leave your household well, you can't do a hundred things well, but you can do three or four. And so we came up with four mission essential tasks that, and really the other way to look at them when we talk to non-military audiences, we talk about what are gifts that you want to give to your children so that when they leave your home, they are equipped as best you can do it. I am completely, um, if I could even say, ignorant towards the military and in particular, perhaps the U.S. military. So uh, I want to apologize right from the outset if my language <laughs> is wrong, if I'm using the wrong terms. You've mentioned that you served for 39 years in the military. Your ranking was lieutenant general, which is a three-star general. Just straight away, would you mind giving me, giving us some context as to the significance of that role in, in the bigger picture? Then you've got your terminology right. And by the way, I, I believe this, that Christ's words in Luke chapter 22, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. So that is my thing. I am not a hierarchical person. I think we ought to be, our leadership ought to be characterized sure. by servanthood and humility. And if we lead from there, that's what we want. But um, here's, here's some rough numbers. Uh, and I'm going to date myself. I retired in 2011. So I'm going to give you the numbers as they were in 2011. There are 16 four-star generals. Those, and I'm a three-star general. And then there's two stars and one star. So I'm going to build a triangle for you. So at the top of that triangle, there's 16. And they yep. are the ones that are like the commander of CENTCOM or AFRICOM. There is a U.S. commander that has all of Africa and in their kind of territory. And then sure. there's, there's NORTHCOM and there's other, there's Forces Command. There's uh, TRADOC, which does all the training and doctrine command. So those are all four-star generals. And then you have three stars. So there's 16 four-stars. When I retired in 2011, there was 32 three-stars. And those three-stars have such roles. One of my, my role, um, I had two three-star positions. Um, the last one was the chief of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So that is the highest position for an engineer officer to be the chief of your branch. So... Uh, I'll give you some other branches. There's infantry, artillery, 
there's aviation. So each one of those branches has a three-star general as the top of that branch. And what we do, our branches, like yeah. every command, those four-star commands, they have an engineer on their staff. And the chief of engineers is the one that put that engineer there. And those are hand-picked people to do it. So uh, the chief of engineers, my particular organization, had 37,000 people and a $45 billion annual budget. So that's the kind of scale scope that a, a pretty typical three-star general would have. And then you have two-star two generals and, uh, yes. and then one-star generals after that. And it is really a pyramid. So you have 16 four-stars, 32 three-stars. And then all together, we had 310 generals. So the last, the, if you're doing the math, after you take the 16 and the 32 out, the others are spread between the two stars and the one stars, and uh, with the majority of them being brigadier generals, one star. So you sat in a role as being chief of engineers. See, I had two offices, and uh, one office was in the Pentagon because you, when you're the chief of engineers, you're also the engineer for the Army on the Army staff. And a, a, my four-star boss was the chief of staff of the United States Army. And then our civilian boss was secretary of the Army because of the way the United States Armed Forces is. We all work for the civilian leadership. But the chief of staff of the Army is a four-star general. He is the head of the Army. And I was on his staff. I was the engineer on his staff. So I had one office in the Pentagon. And I had one office in that was over in Washington, D.C. It was on 4th and G. And here's why. It's because the chief of engineers also answers to the Congress of the United States because the, the Congress appropriates the money sure. for such things as locks and dams and hydropower and dredging of the ports and harbors, all of which is part of the mission set for the Corps of Engineers. So I had two offices, uh, and interestingly enough, the office in Washington, D.C., there's a law that was an 1823 law that said the chief of engineers shall never be more than a day's horse ride out of Washington, D.C. What that, And that's still on the books, uh, and no one will ever change it. I guess the airplane is a horse ride these days, but they would. Uh, the, the idea was that they could get a hold of the chief of engineers that he could get on his horse and he could come over and talk to the Congress. And uh, during my tenure as chief um, and my time as a division commander district, all together, I had over 114 hearings with the Congress of the United States. For you to actually be appointed in that role, uh, I believe it's an appointment by the president. But That's correct. That has to That's be correct. All the Senate. three star. Well, actually, all general officer positions, they are they have to be approved by the uh, by the Senate. Um, but the three at the three star level, you're you're nominated for a very particular job and you have a hearing usually with the Senate, uh, you know, authorization committee for that. And then the Senate votes on whether you will take that job. So that's how it works. And is that, is that vote um, based upon an interview process? Would you have gone through a, a rigorous you, um, interview You start by your, your course, 
you are put up for that position by the chief of staff of the army and the secretary of the army. And then you go, it go your nomination yeah. goes to the Department of Defense. And in, in my case, I had to interview with Secretary Rumsfeld, which may be a name familiar to you. He was one of our um, you know, secretaries of defense. Yeah. And I interviewed with him and then he put my name over to the president. And then the president nominated me to the Congress. And then, then the, you go to a hearing where that's where congressional members get to ask you questions. That's their interview process. But of course, another subset of that is before you go to that hearing, you're going to go talk to all those guys. And so guys and gals, so you're going to go. So I had, I think, 21 interviews with senators before I went to the hearing. Did you have anything in particular that you would have focused in on just in the way you presented yourself or, uh, you know, work prior to going into those interviews? And I'm just thinking it from the perspective of for many people right now, if you look at economies around the world and obviously it's hitting the United States as much as it's affecting everybody, there are people that potentially would have uh, lost jobs, would have to start in new careers, and they're going to go through that interview process. And again, I know context is slightly different and scale is slightly different, but any thoughts of advice? It's interesting because a lot of people, even now, because some of my colonels and majors and that are now at the general officer level and they're getting ready to go through that. I get a lot of calls for saying, so any advice, sir, on how to go through this? So um, I'm going to give you four words that I think are crucial for leadership. And they kind of get strung together. The first word is attitude. The second word is behavior. The third word is influence. And the fourth word is outcomes. And so if you tie them together, your attitude determines your behavior. Your behavior determines your influence, which is, in its essence, influence is leadership, where you are going to there's been times I've had to take people where they would not have gone there on their own. It was up to me to motivate them, inspire them, yeah. encourage them, push them to go where they might not have gone. And then if you do those three things, then you will get great outcomes. And we need to focus on outcomes because if you just have a great attitude, good behavior and some influence, but it doesn't produce outcomes. And so the people that are interviewing, they want to know what you're going to do. They're going to want to know what the outcomes are going to be, why we should put you in this position because of what will be delivered. So as I talk about that, I always take them back. Well, here's my attitude about this. First, this is a time for us to be innovative, proactive, inspiring at every level. And I start with people because those attitudes and my behavior affects people and how they're going to respond to my leadership, the influence. And then we're going to get great outcomes if we do this right. So the, I tell them that. So when you go in for an interview, you want to lean forward. You want to, you, you want to listen really well to what the questions they are. You don't want them to put words in your mouth. You know what you want to say. You want to show them into your heart, your soul, and your leadership. And so, um, because I'm a man of faith, you know, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, 
I'm going to be as outwardly on that as I can, dependent on that audience, but I'm going to let them know that I'm a person of faith. And one of the things I, I've told at the highest level of this government, I'm going to pray about what we're going to do. They'll say, well, what are you going to do about this? I said, well, the very first thing I'm going to do is pray. And then I go on and tell them, you know, what I've, my way of attacking that particular thing. I think on the attitude part, I, I used the words earlier uh, with you, is that Paul and I talk about what we get to do today. I don't have to do anything in life. I get to do things in life. And even if it's a tough job and it has to be done, it isn't, you know, you wouldn't pick it. But you now that you have to do that, and I'll use that word, you need to reframe it that I get to do that. This is a privilege. Like we're going to, we get to recover after this pandemic. And that's where that attitude, that's why it all starts with attitude. So I've had, I've had senators say, I love your attitude. You know, when they say that, they're going to they're going to say we're going to give this guy this job. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much for that. So obviously we've we've touched on the significant leadership mm -hmm. role uh, that you would have carried roles. I mean, multiple roles that you would have carried in such a significant organization. And you, you mentioned obviously the multiple millions involved in that organization. Can I ask you, going right back to the beginning, you're now 17, 18 years old. Why did you step into this path of, of joining the military? Well, 17 and 18, I don't know what our aspiration was. I'll tell you what mine was, it's to play football at the next level. Um, so I was an athlete in high school, and uh, it was kind of interesting, and this isn't bragging, but my wife and I were, uh, as we were seniors in high school, they elected us to be the most likely to be the president and the first lady. So, which I am so glad that did not come true, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Well, you got, but, uh, got so there, I, I got recruited <laughs> by West Point to go play football. So that's where it started. And so, but when I got into West Point, it became yeah, so sure. much more than that. It became this notion of service it's a great education. And, and so it was a, my college was an equipping time for that, but that's really how I got into it. I went there to play football, but then it became so much more than that. It became the leadership It became, I, I have so many mentors um, that um, some from that era, both spiritually and militarily, and that, that it was just a wonderful start. So when I was 17, I, I knew I wanted to go to college and I, I thought I wanted to go play football. Little did I know that it was going to lead to an Army career. And I'll, I'll answer a question that you didn't ask, but I get asked a lot. When did you know you were going to go for 39 years or something? I'd say, you don't. You don't. You do one at a time. So when yeah. you graduate from West Point, you have a five-year commitment. So my, my horizon was five years. And a lot of people say, oh, you mean after I graduate from college, I got to do five years? Well, if you think of it that way, that you have to do five years. But if you think I get to do five years, that I'm going to learn as much as I can. And of course, I was an engineer. I ended up getting my professional engineer's license and everything. I was competitive on the outside or the inside.
of the army. I just stayed on the inside. Um, but I, you know, I, I was keeping pace with people. I was leading much bigger organizations than my contemporaries were. You know, it's unusual. Like when you're, when you're a young lieutenant, you come straight out of college, you're given 32 people that to lead and you've got millions of dollars worth of equipment. When in business do you lead 32 people and have millions of dollars worth of business when you're 21 years old yeah. or 22 years old? You don't. So it's a, it's an acceleration crucible that yeah. I was in. And I found more and more I was just thriving in that. And then so, and, and here's, how the, here's how the Army works. You know, when I got to be to the point that we had to make some decision, stay in or get out, they said, well, we'll send you to grad school. What do you want to study? We'll send you for two years. You can go back to West Point and teach. Okay. So we go and do that. Now you're in 12 years and then, then you're in 18 and then you're, you know, and all of a sudden I'm in 39. Go figure. <laughs> so in the Corps of Engineers, in you being, you know, the commanding officer, you would have over 30,000, right. I think it's close That's to 37,000 right. right. personnel that are involved in that. Would that be correct? You've got the, the chief of engineer's office and your, your yeah. other title is the commander of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So you are over all of that 37,000. By the way, in that 37,000, there's about 500 uniformed military and the rest are civilians. They're Department of the Army civilians. And then you also have this other side of the Corps of Engineers, which is the uniformed military. So the, the chief of engineers office is largely about the civil works mission for the United States. Um, so you do, you know, locks and dams, some of the other things I talked about, the, the ports and harbors. Uh, but you also do all the construction on Air Force and Army bases, big construction, hospitals, those kinds of things. So that's the thing. But under that, under the chief of engineers, you have 12 generals that are division commanders, one and two star generals. And then the next part of the hierarchies under that, there's 45 districts. We have a district in Korea, a district in Japan, a district in Europe, districts all over the United States, 45 of them. Now to zero down in Katrina, one of those districts is the commander of the districts in New Orleans, in Louisiana. And so they were the point of the spear. They got hit yeah. and they also had to respond to the hit. So here's some of the things that a chief of engineers does during that. First of all, when I took over as chief, the, uh, the hurricane was in 2005. I took over in 2007. Um, so some of the kind of, they were just sorting out and shoveling mud out of homes and everything. But in 2007, we really went to work on building the new, and we called it the, not the protection system, but the risk reduction system. Cause I felt very strongly, you we're going to have people saying, now I'm not at risk anymore. That's not true. You're always at risk. You live behind a levy, you're at risk. Um, but we're going to build that levy bigger and stronger than it was ever yep. before because um, some of our levees failed because they were the way they were built back in the 1950s. You know, it's just that was the technology of the time. Um, so to get to now zero down. Um, so you go from this 37,000. So every week when I took over as the chief of engineers, I spent 
about one day a week down in New Orleans at the beginning, not to run the recovery process and the rebuilding, but to go and and put my weight behind it. And part of that weight is to say, what do you need? So I, I remember the district commander used to get tired. I'd say, okay, is there anything else you need from us? I want to give you what you need to do this job well, because you're a resourcer. Um, at one time, there's 45 other districts. I told you about every other district had at least one expert that was working in New Orleans. Now, who can get that done? The only person really can get that done is the chief of engineers. And I, you know, talking to my division engineers and the other districts, I said, you got to send your best people to do this. And you're, you're going to make a sacrifice here for them. But we're going to do this and we're going to whip this because we had a mandate by the president of the United States to get that thing done. So, um, so that's a lot of what the chief does. The chief is the ultimate resourcer because you can tap 37,000 people to go and uh, enter the fight in the right place. And the other part is, yeah. I, I feel strongly about this, is that you need to have a presence. We call it leading from the front. And so by me going down every week, people, everybody could see your calendar. Yep. And no one said, why are you spending so much time down in New Orleans? They knew what I was doing because that was our reputation was at stake. Not only that, but the protection of the people, the at least the risk reduction of the people, that was at stake. So we're going to get that right. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you one other thing, just in perspective. Uh, we had 85,000 contracts my last year as the chief of engineers, 85,000 contracts in effect of people constructing things for the Corps of Engineers and the nation all over the nation. That's a lot of contracts. And the total worth of those contracts was about $45 billion. So that's, uh, that's it. But, um, you know, wow. my wife would tell you, you know, there, there were some really tough days. But most of the I mean, every day we had that get to conversation and I woke up and I felt what a privilege it is to lead people to do this. You know, other, other people are kind of going through life and maybe just taking care of themselves. Yeah. We are taking care of this nation. And that's a it's a high calling. It might be a big question to answer. And I'm, I'm trying to phrase it in the right way. But could you think of the. Was there was there one thing that you did consistently in your leadership that you felt like was the thing that brought about uh, the most effective results, or you know, for the for the effort and energy that you were putting in? Could you narrow it down to one thing or, or, or a few small things? The the first thing is, I think people would say, "Well, Van's a team builder." That. I realize, you know, if you take, there's groups and there's teams. And a group would be, we're going to add up the individual scores. Like group, generally, if you take the, the sport of golf, generally, like a college golf team, what they do basically is add up the scores of everybody on that team. That's, that's how you get that. So that's one plus one plus one. But a team is much different than a group. There is a multiplication factor that happens with the team. And I'll even stay with a golf analogy. When you get to the America's Cup or you get to 
the Ryder Cup or you get to some of these things where a team is put together, where that team feeds off of each other and people are around the green from that team cheering you on, that is a different motivation. So I think the biggest thing is I'm, I'm, a, I'm a team builder. That's why I love the name that we have now in, uh, for our corporate uh, part of the Flipper Group. It's called Teamalytics. That's what we're about. We're about, we're about that multiplication factor. And to build great yeah. teams, you have to be a great collaborator. You have to have people involved in the process, that they're involved in the decision. Um, I, I love the idea of uh, buy-in. And here's a little bit of the buy-in. First of all, they have to buy into the leader before they're going to buy into where the leader's taking them. They're going to be much more apt to buy into where we're going if they had a voice in it. And so I have a little equation. <laughs> I'll give it to you because I'm, a, I'm an engineer. So engineers, we like equations. I, I tell people we don't – a lot of people say, well, do you have a formula for that? I say, no, babies drink formula. <laughs> engineers use equations. But – Here's, here's the equation. If you want to get buy-in or really get team connection, there's got to be three things. One is you've got to have shared values. Another one, you've got to have a shared vision. And these all start with V. The third one is you've got to have shared voice. Now, I know for me personally, if I have a voice, even if you go a different way, if you've let me speak my piece and argue my case, I'm going to be all right if you decide to go a different way. But if, if we don't give other people that voice, so I am a voice yeah. giver. I want, and if I got 10 people around the table and we're working on coming up with a strategy for something and two or three of those people haven't spoken yet, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to say, what do you think? I need your voice. You're here at this table for a reason. But the bigger reason in the back of my mind is I want them to buy in after we say, okay, this is the way we're going to go. I want to make sure I got everybody's commitment. And because that commitment then will lead to our accountability, which leads to great outcomes. So that's kind of, that's my thinking, I guess, uh, in a word, long answer to short question, I would say I'm a team builder. That's what I am. And I'm also, I'm a relational person. I, I, one of the things I love today, I get my old guys call me all the time and ask me and tell me about what they're doing next. And I'm cheering them on. And, uh, you know, some of them are doing great and mighty things. I've got many yeah. generals that worked for me when they were just, uh, you know, captains, lieutenants. Uh, one of the guys we called the other night, is uh he is uh one of the founders he's the the chairman ceo i guess uh, of this big multi-billion dollar company he's one of my lieutenants <laughs> i go that's an amazing thing you know we had a great conversation and it was just uh good yeah, catching yeah. up but uh we love that and and he he comes back and he said, you know, you're the one that started me on this track. You're the one that gave me these leadership examples. I said, nah, you 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 had them in you. We just had to kind of show you what it looked like. Um, so that's what that's what it'd be. In your opinion, you know, I, what makes I love a this, great team player? I think one is humility. 
and I know that sounds kind of strange, but, um, you know, in, I, I do believe, well, I'll, I'll give you a little reference for that. When uh, Jim Collins wrote the book, Good to Great, and I don't know if you know of Jim Collins or that, but um, it's, it's a great book. But in there, he talks yep. about level five leaders. And he talks about the two things that make a level five, that distinguishes them from a level yes. four, level three, level two, whatever. Level five being the highest. One is personal humility. The second one is professional will. I have those two things. I think, um, and I'm, I'm saying that, and I know it's hard. Sometimes, if we say we're humble, we're probably not. But th- those are things that God has worked on in my life. And first thing has to die is pride that you know better that you're that you're if you roll up your bootstraps and, you know, you're you can decide you can do it. That's why some of the rhetoric coming out that I've done this and I've done that. I I will tell you that has not been my thing. My thing has been we've done this. We've done that Uh, together. We do that, that that team. But so it's that the first part is that is a humility to know, first of all, I love the, the word, where my confidence is. So my ultimate confidence is in God. That's where if I stop and pray, my confidence is he's going he's gonna to lead this team. And I tell you, a lot of my teams, you know, right or wrong, we would stop and pray about the big decisions we had. And I was already praying. I, and I tell them, you guys keep praying on your own. If anyone, you know, if God's speaking to you, bring it up in this meeting. We want to hear about it. Um, the other thing I like, it comes from the purpose-driven life on humility. It's not thinking less of yourself. That's the way it starts. This is a definition for humility. That because a lot of Christians think, I'm no good. I'm not qualified. Well, if God asks you to do a job, he's going to equip you to do that job. That's what I know. And I tell people that. When people come to me and say, I don't know if I can do this. said, is God put you here? Then he'll give yeah. you. you. You pray about what he wants you to do. You work hard. You do your homework. You study. You do all those things. You're gonna you're gonna do well here because God will equip you for this. Um, and then, so the first part of it is it's not thinking less of yourself because I know a lot of Christians that think less of themselves. They're they're so depreciating. I say that's not really humble. That's self depreciating. It's different. And so the second part of that, so it's not thinking less yeah, of sure. yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. And if you run those last two words together, you get selfless. That's, that's service. That's where I'm more concerned about you than I am me. I will take the hardship so you don't have to. That's why we as parents will sacrifice for our children. It's, that's a selfless act. And so I think, so that's, so I would say it's humility. And then the second part of that is that professional will. Um, I would fire myself if I'm not doing my job. I would. I would. Um, that's how I feel strongly about that. Because I think we, and sometimes I've had to make hard calls. You have too, I'm sure, where, wow, you know, it's it's someone I really love, but they're not in the right seat of the bus. And um, maybe they're not even on the right bus. And I've, I've had to make those calls. They're the toughest ones because people matter you know there it's about relationships but not everybody's in the right job for yeah. the, for what what we need to do for our organizations leadership matters i know you know that and and leadership sets the tone flip might have talked about it. he wrote this 
the leaders are the lid. So leader, you can either lift that lid or you can be a low lid. And I'm, uh, yep. you know, I, I guess I'm for raising the lid. Let's get the lid up there. Raising the lid for my wife, for my family, for my grandkids, for people yep. that I work with and, and people that I lead. You spoke of in that team dynamic, um, you know, shared values and shared vision. And then the shared voice. That, that's something that I'm, I'm interested in. How, how important is honesty and truth-telling in the context of, of leading? And, and not so much in you as the leader being honest and truthful in people that perhaps are reporting to you. What about when you find yourself in a situation where you're reporting to a superior? It takes courage, doesn't it, to actually give voice and, and to be honest. And, and the reason why I'm asking this question, I read and I picked up on a particular scenario, and it was in relation to Katrina and New Orleans, and obviously with what you were involved there. And it might have been a scenario where you were on Air Force One, and you actually had to give some honest feedback and... Again, please correct me if I'm, if I'm out of line here, yeah. but um, some honest feedback to the President of the United States. Yeah, I, I will start, uh, and then I will confirm your story. You're absolutely right. I'll tell you a little bit of that story. But um, first of all, some people don't take feedback well. And as a leader, we need, to, we need to work on our behavior that we will take feedback well. And there's three elements to feedback. I'll start with just a little. This is, the, this is what's behind good feedback. Number one, it needs to be timely because we all have memory lapses over time. Things can change or look differently if it's too far away. So I say if you're, if, if you're going to get good feedback or give good feedback, it needs to be timely. And in some cases... Uh, sometimes it isn't right when the thing happens because I think that's when you need to go and stop and pray and think about what am I about to say? How's this going to be received? Will this move the ball? Uh, one other thing, kind of just as a sidelight, I don't give feedback if I don't yeah. think it's going to move the ball. I mean, I'm, I'm to, to do it and have it be a throwaway. So that will tell you, the person receiving it has to be a good receptor of that feedback. And a lot of leaders are not. They might say, give me some feedback or whatever, which is a horrible question, by the way, because there's no, the second part of good feedback is it's specific. The third part of good feedback is it's actionable. And if you can't, and sure. if you, when we're going to give somebody feedback, and we haven't thought about the actionable part of that, and I'll, I'll give you an example. If you're giving affirmation to somebody, and affirmation is feedback also, you're, you're going to affirm somebody for something. The actionable part is that keep doing what you're doing. So affirmation feedback is real easy to do. The third part of that is to, is to say you keep doing that. But when you give critical feedback, you want to have thought about what actions do you hope come from this? What do you want them to work on? And that should be a lot of the discussion. And that can be really upbeat. And I always start, you know, I'm going to ask you to tweak your behavior just a little bit in this area because I think it's going to make you an even better leader than you have. A lot of this is the style points you get when you talk about it. But um, so I, I am a firm believer on that. But some people are really hard to give feedback. Yeah. And some people, especially if they're above you, 
Um, one of the great things about being kind of the older statesman and being a truth teller along the way, and if you do it well, they're going to ask you for it. That's what I found out over time. So let me go to the scenario with President Bush. Um, not many yeah. people had a project that was watched over by the president of the United States. And so um, I get a call one morning, go over to Andrews Air Force Base and get on the plane. The president's going to go down and check out the project down in New Orleans, Katrina recovery. And you go, OK, so what do you think the first thing I did? I got on the phone. I talked to my district commander and my division commander. I did a three-way call. I, I learned how to do that because it's really helpful rather than just talk to one. You know, I want to get the whole chain of command, but I don't want to have two phone calls and, and relay <laughs> what I said to the other one. I get them both on the phone right then. And I tell them what's happening. And I say, I'm going to Andrews Air Force Base. We're coming down to see you. And my district commander said, I was about to call you two, division commander and you chief, and tell you, Three hard cars just rolled out of an aircraft down here, and it's a presidential aircraft. I think we're getting a visitor. And so right there on that phone call, we got to talk about what were we going to show the president. And we, we had pretty much a standing circuit for VIPs, but I said, I want him to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. I want him to know what we're up against, and I want him to know where we're doing well and where we need maybe his push, his resources. And, uh, and so... So we get on the airplane and we're going down there and we had a great oh. visit and he loved, we, you know, he's a people person. Uh, he's very sympathetic, empathetic. And when he got on the ground, he's great when he is on the ground. People love him. He goes in his cowboy hat and cowboy boots and all of that stuff. So we get on the plane, we're flying back. And uh, when, you know, we had that moment around the table, it's in aircraft in uh, Air Force One, there's a, uh, big conference table and everything. So the two senators, a couple of the congressmen, myself, uh, the head of FEMA, because um, they're the arm to recover in the United States from things. And so we're, we're all talking and the president turns to me and he said, man, what could I have done different? That was his question. Is there anything I could have done differently? And you know, that's where you have your thing. Is this person really receptive? Are you going to give them the truth? Or are you going to say, Mr. President, you did everything right? You could have, you know, it would have been a short conversation. And I, and I, um, yeah, I prayed about it very quickly and said, uh, Mr. President, this, um, I, you know, when I go to a disaster area, I feel your pain. I, I feel what happens when you walk down out of that aircraft and you're being met by people that are that are impacted by a hurricane, that have lost loved ones, that all this. And it said, and the very first thing you want to say is we're going to build it back just like it was, only bigger and stronger. And that's exactly, I quoted what the president said shortly after Katrina, when he went down to New Orleans. So I knew what he had said. And I, so now I had something very specific I was going yeah. to give him. And the feedback was this. If I had to give you any feedback, Mr. President, that I would say this. When you walk down those steps, do everything you're doing right now as far as being empathetic and sympathetic and understand the people and you're there to see and to help them, you can. But 
when you said these words, we're going to build it back exactly like it was, only bigger and stronger. What you did was lock us in to a recovery plan that we couldn't change, that we couldn't build that recovery plan that was going to be the best risk reduction system for the people. And and he, he asked a couple of more questions. I said, the best thing we could have done instead of, and, and, you know, we can't go back on this, but we rebuilt 320 miles of levees. We should have rebuilt 220 and let a lot of it go back to seed, move people out of where they were. Their homes were already destroyed. Buy that land back, build them homes much more expensive and bigger on higher ground, and let that yeah. be a buffer to this. But once he said exactly like it was, he was held accountable for that word. So he, he set a footprint that cost, you know, it was a, it was another six yeah, billion sure. dollars worth of work and, and a lot more time. And we were willing to do it. And he said, but you know, once the president speaks, they won't let him, he can't back off on that and say, Oh, we got a better plan. Now we're going to pull this in. We're going to do this. So um, that was the feedback. And just to close that out, he, you know, he ends up saying, he said what you're supposed to say when you get feedback. Thank you. He says, thank you. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. I, you know, uh, you're just trying to be sympathetic and empathetic. I get it. You want to say, we're going to totally restore you just like it was, but we could have made it so much better for the people down there or not so much better. I mean, we got a really good system now but it was a lot more expensive, a lot bigger than probably we needed. So anyway, um, it was very interesting. Fast forward, we yeah. went on another disaster. It was a, a hurricane down in Florida. I'm flying with him. He gets ready to go off the plane and he looks back at me and he taps his temple with his finger. Because the way that it works, you're all in the plane. Until the president goes and clears down there and meets all the dignitaries, you don't go out of that plane. We're all in there, right? But we're waiting for him to go down the steps and with his wife and everything. And and she's terrific. She is awesome. Yeah. Uh, that's teamwork. My wife and I, we we try to be that same kind of team. But, um, you know, he taps his temple and he looks right at me. He doesn't even have to say a word. You know what he's thinking when he's going down there? I'm going to really watch what I say about this recovery. And, and I'm going to let my experts figure out what's the best way to do the recovery. And until... Yeah. But once I lock them in, um, as the, the leader at, at his level, it's locked in. Um, so I know it's a long explanation, but that's, that's what, what happened on that. And uh, I used to tell people, if the president of the United States can ask for feedback, so can I've got one final question for you, if you're okay with that. You served for such a long period of time within the military. And, and the military, I know you would have been dealing with civilians at the same time. How... Have you had to change 500 uniform military, mostly division commanders, district commanders, and deputies, and then the rest of that 37,000 were civilians. So I led. There's two. There's two um, organizations in the army that are yeah. more like businesses than they are like army units. One is the Corps of Engineers. The other is the Army Materiel Command. So those leaders of those two organizations are, I think, better equipped for business because they both, well, and the Corps is even unique in that. 
the Army and Department of Defense has a budget, but the Corps of Engineers has its own budget, the Civil Works budget. And so you're running a big P&L when you're the chief of engineers. You have to prioritize that, use that money wisely, um, get the best deal. You have to essentially you're operating at zero profit, but you don't want to operate where you got to go back and ask for more. So I think many of the same things. So I was God gave me a gift in that he allowed me to run an organization that was largely civilian. And um, there's different ways of operating. I mean, a lot of people think, well, you can just tell officers what to do. Well, the best way to do it is like we already talked about. It's to give them a shared voice. And the civilians in an organization need that shared voice. And so uh, I had the privilege of working with a lot of senior civilians. In fact, we had in the Corps of Engineers, they have 44 um, senior civilians that are general officer equivalent civilians. I mean, they're at the same level as a general officer. And so that was that was unique. Um, most of my work now in the corporate world, I'm, I'm, of course, working with Teamalytics and the Flippin' Group and and coaching leaders. And a lot of that is a lot of what we've just talked about, things on this call that are just uh, things on my mind, things that worked. And I've got things that didn't work that we tried. Um, so it's that. But I think the other part, I'm on corporate boards right now. I'm on uh, the USAA's yeah. board, which is uh, a multi-billion dollar insurance company, bank, uh, investment uh, organization. And uh, we have 21 board members. It's a very um, powerful board. It's a strong board. It's a, it's a leadership board. And it's got tremendous leaders of, of industry and of the military in it. Um, and then I'm also on my elder board at church. And I think um, while we don't look at our church as a business, we do try and on the board, try to have the right amount of separation that the that, you know, we're, we're very much, you know, um, as far as our relationships with the staff and pastors, we have seven pastors that is awesome. And we cultivate that in each one of the elders. I mean, they're talking to the pastors all the time, but we know when it needs to be a decision brought into the elder board of which our executive pastor and our senior pastor are elder board members. Um, and then when it needs to be, this is management, so to speak, this is theirs to decide. And so um, it's been great being on boards in the out in the corporate sector and then also being on that board. One of the things you can tell people want feedback is, will they do anything once they get it? And you saw the president when he walked down there at that for the Florida disaster, he got it. He took that feedback and he did something yeah. with it. Again, to come full cycle to how how was it going into the business world? I probably had the best training in uniform to do that that I possibly could have. But now have I learned a ton by being out there in the business world? Yeah, no question. There's still a lot to learn. And I'm a learner. I'm I'm always reading and Flip asked me to send him any books that I thought would be good. I send him a list of about 20 books. I said, where where do you want to start? <laughs> um just just a, one or two words on the culture. Culture change is about behaving your way into what you want your behavior to be. 
So it, it has to do, again, that you can go to the attitude and behavior. But if you want to bring about a culture change, it's about your behavior and your attitude. People will, will get that. Um, the other thing, I think, yeah. what you celebrate tells a lot about your culture. So I'll go into a business today and I'll say, tell me about, what, what are you guys celebrating? When's the last time you had a town hall? What did you do at that town hall? Did you just discuss the business or did you discuss, did you get people up on stage and celebrate things that they've done that are great? You do that. You're telling, you're stating what your culture is. General Van, I want to thank you so much. I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. I could talk to you for hours, but we've had a very good amount of time on, on the call. You're, you're most welcome. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget, share this with your friends and family. Go onto your preferred podcast platform and subscribe. And even check out my website, bevanrussell.com. That's double S and double L in Russell, bevanrussell.com. And we'll connect again very soon for another human story.